Well, speaking of the waters of baptism, there is a saying that blood is thicker than water. I'm sure you've all heard that saying before. Um, This saying communicates the idea that relationships and loyalty within the family is more important than any other relationships or loyalties outside the family. And certainly, while no family is perfect, I've seen this saying hold true for many, many families, at least between most family members. But I have to say that I have observed one particular life event, one kind of life event that often tears families apart time and time again. It's when someone dies and leaves behind a significant inheritance and it's unclear as to how it should be divided. You guys know what I'm talking about. I just heard the groans as I said that. Blood may be thicker than water, but it seems to be quickly soaked up by the sight of money. Or how many stories have I heard of someone, for instance, winning the lottery and then suddenly out of nowhere, distant family members that have been out of touch for pretty much an entire lifetime will suddenly appear and get in contact wanting a piece of that wealth. What this reveals about us is the depravity of the human heart. We make idols out of our current lives. Now, it's not always money. It could be attention. It could be affirmation, status, recognition, or the love and approval of other people. And the wisdom of this age even pushes that further by telling everyone to do what makes you happy, to pursue your passion, to chase your dreams. Undoubtedly, you have all heard that many times, and especially and increasingly in in frequency as we have all gotten older. The problem with this approach is many. For many, those pursuits end in heartache because they cannot be achieved. For others who achieve such goals, they find the reward disappointing. Some will be so obsessed that they will sacrifice time with their own family. And even for the few who achieve such success and enjoy what they do, that success is fleeting. It's only going to last as long as you live, and as the saying goes, you can't take it with you. Beloved, the reason why these endeavors are fleeting is ultimately because we were not made for these goals or purposes in mind. You see, the truth is that we were made in the image of God for the glory of God. And until we know who God is and understand that he alone is worthy of worship, he alone is worthy of adoration, he alone is worthy of our praise, Our lives, until we realize those things, our lives will be simply meaningless, no matter how much pleasure we derive from those temporal pursuits. And on top of that, we need him. We need God to rescue us from ourselves, do we not? Our sinful nature that causes us to put ourselves and our needs at the center of the universe above all else. But when we as believers turn to God, when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when we repented of our sins, we were saved. We were forgiven. We received a new heart, a new nature. We became new creation in Christ. But sadly, many of us can forget that in our day-to-day struggles. We get pulled into worldly concerns once again. We are saddened by temporal matters. We begin to give too much ground to the flesh, and we don't walk nearly as often as we should by the Spirit. And the problem centers around our misdirected purpose. You see, our purpose is not wrapped up in the temporal. Our purpose is firmly rooted in the eternal. And until you brace that, you will struggle to experience true joy in this life that can only come from God. That's why we need to wake up our minds. We need to stir up our hearts. Let our spirits soak in the wondrous realities of God so that we may no longer be dragged down by the things of the world, but instead be overcome with our hope in the future. That's why we need to immerse ourselves in God and his word. We need to immerse ourselves in the praises that the people of God give to God. So this morning, as we conclude this three-part message on the spiritual blessings of God, 
My purpose, my goal this morning is for us to once again dwell upon these blessings of salvation given to us in Christ so that you will be moved to praise his glory. Again, my purpose this morning is for us once again to dwell upon those blessings of salvation given to us in Christ so that we will be moved to the praise of his glory. Now, while I'll be covering verses 11 through 14 this morning, let's go ahead and read the entire passage from verses 3 to 14. As a reminder, this is all one sentence in the Greek. This is one long extended prayer of praise, uh, really praise from Paul. And it's all summarized by that first verse in verse 3, but it continues all the way down to verse 14. And as I read, try to see how many blessings you can remember and recognize. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, to, just to remind you, our purpose this morning is to dwell upon God the Father's blessings of salvation given to us in Christ so that you'll be moved to the praise of his glory. And this morning, we're going to see the final two blessings cited by Paul that God provided to believers through his son. And the first being that he gave us an inheritance according to his purpose. He gave us an inheritance according to his purpose. Now, we pick up from the very last two words in verse 10, which is in him. That connects to verse 11. So verse 11, we read, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, immediately when we look at these verses, we have to ask perhaps an unexpected question. Who is Paul referring to when he says, we? Well, if I say to you, we are all gathered this morning for worship, you would understand I'm talking about all of us. But if I were to refer to the deacons and myself and say that we are looking out for the edification of the church, then you would expect that I'm talking about myself and the deacons. My point is that in the English language, even when we use the word we, it can either refer to a subset of people or it can refer to everyone who are in your presence. And so it's the same thing in Greek. We have to ask what and who is Paul referring to when he says we. Now, you don't have to think about it too hard when we talk about this in the English. Context helps you understand who I'm referring to, who people are referring to when they use that word. And so far in these verses that we've read, going back to verse 3, references to we and us have clearly referred to all believers. Take a look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. We see many 
instances of us and we, and clearly that's referring to everyone who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in this case, notice that starting in verse 12, starting in verse 12, Paul qualifies the we. Verse 12 reads, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 13, he provides a contrast by saying, in him, you also. So you see a we and a you between verses 13, between 12 and 13. Now, I'm going to argue the fact that the first we, starting in verse 11, refers to all believers, that we all have an inheritance. The second we, those who have put their hope first in Christ, refers to Jewish believers. And then in verse um, verse. 13, that the you refers to Gentile believers. So just put that in your back of your mind first, and I'll explain that as we go through. So first we go to verse 11, and we see that it starts off with, in him also we have obtained in, uh, an inheritance. So we see that first we there. Now the word for inheritance is interesting. This is a distinct element of God's sovereignty that's implied with that word. Literally, that the word used for inheritance means to appoint or to obtain by lot. That, that word used for obtaining an inheritance. But what does that mean? Well, often in scripture, you see the term casting lots. You'll, you'll hear about people casting lots. And oftentimes, we just kind of go over that and not know exactly what that means. Well, casting lots is essentially like drawing straws or rolling the dice. It was a way of appointing something to someone without any human bias. So there wouldn't be bias on a person's part. It would be based upon really what people might call the luck of the draw. But what we often think of as luck, and certainly non-believers would often see this as luck or chance, but what we often think of as luck, the people of God in Scripture have always regarded God as being sovereign over all such actions. In fact, at the start of the book of Acts, recognizing that there were only 12 apostles. The apostles actually drew lots determined to, uh, to, to, the apostles actually drew lots between the two candidates to determine whether a man named Joseph or another named Matthias would be appointed to be the 12th apostle. You'll see that in Acts chapter 1 verse 26, Acts chapter 1 verse 26. So in a sense it was a way of letting God determine who would be appointed to something or some task by taking human bias out of the equation. In fact, even going back to the Old Testament, when Israel went into the promised land, that's how the land was to be divvied up between them, which is by lot. In fact, hold your place here. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers would be the third book of the Old Testament. You have Genesis, you have Exodus, and you have Numbers. And look at Numbers chapter 26. So after Exodus, you have Numbers. It's just before, I'm sorry, it's, it's the fourth book. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And go to Numbers chapter 26, verse 55. Numbers chapter 26, verse 55. And we read these instructions given. In verse 55, we read, But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. So we know that there had been a promised land that had been promised through the Abrahamic covenant. We know that Israel was on their way to the promised land. And the question is, how would they divide up the land? Well, they would divide it up by lots. They would draw up lots to see who got which portion of the land. Go to chapter 33, verse 54. Chapter 33, verse 54. And you see it repeated again in chapter 33, verse 54. You shall inherit the land by lot, according to your families. To the larger, you shall give more inheritance. And to the smaller, you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. And then chapter 34, verse 13. Chapter 34, verse 13. We see again here, so Moses commanded the sons of Israel, saying, This is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as a possession which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine and a half tribes. 
Now, why nine and a half tribes? Because Judah had been assigned the tribe in the south. Um, the, the, the Levites did not um, have their own land. They were given um, watch over the temple. And then there was the tribe of Benjamin, who was also in the south as well. Um, but we have these three instances where the land is divvied up by lot. And you can even write this down. Joshua chapter 14, verse 2. Joshua chapter 14, verse 2. It's repeated again. They are reminded of how the land was divvied up by lot. So you can see that as the Israelites were given their land by lot, then they would start to refer to this land as their lot. This is my lot. In fact, even in the English, we kind of have this, this terminology in English. I don't hear it as much today, but sometimes you'll hear people say, my lot in life to do, is to do X, Y, and Z. It's the idea that something has been given to you outside of your control. So lot has, had become known as really kind of an inheritance, something given to you by God. So going back to Ephesians 1, verse 11. Ephesians 1, verse 11. Again, that idea of Lot being something that was given to you, that's the word in verb form being used here, that we have obtained an inheritance. It comes from the Greek verb, which literally means to obtain by Lot. The implication is that God is the one who provided this to us. Thus, we call it an inheritance. Now, the question is, though, okay, so we have obtained an inheritance. What is that inheritance? Well, Paul doesn't get into it here, but the idea of an inheritance can be found throughout the New Testament. While the inheritance for Israel was clearly land, Jesus instructs us to store up treasures in heaven. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I'll just read this to you. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting, he opens it up exactly the way Paul opened up Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a marvelous promise given to us by Peter, that you have an inheritance in heaven waiting for you that is unfading, imperishable, and undefiled, and is protected by the power of God. This is one of the mysteries of Scripture. Now, we don't know exactly what this treasure or inheritance is, but knowing, I mean, think about this for a moment, knowing that God has created the heavens and the earth. And many of you have gone out, and, out on vacation or have just come back from vacation. Most of you have gone to places where you can enjoy the beautiful sights of God, right? You, you can see the mountains, you can see the sea, you can enjoy nicer weather, you can see trees and forest and all those kinds of things. And you look out and you see nothing but God's country. That is the amazing work of God in creation. Knowing that God did that. Knowing that all good and perfect things come from above, as James said. Knowing that the treasures we often cherish here in this world are imperfect and tainted by the effects of sin. What I can tell you without a doubt is that this inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven is good. It's better than good. It's far better than you can possibly even imagine. For if you would travel hours upon hours to distant lands to be able to see the marvelous work of God in creation, remind yourself that we're living in a sin-tainted world. The inheritance that we have above is far greater than the, than the worthless little trinkets and possessions that we have here on earth. And sometimes we can get overly virtuous about our heavenly treasures, saying things like, Oh, I don't care about my treasures as long as I'm in heaven. I'll be happy. 
And beloved, I totally understand that sentiment because if we're in heaven, we are eternally blessed. But can I tell you this? The reason why we see so much of our inheritance, the reason why God speaks so much of our treasure, the reason why Paul himself will strive after a greater reward is because God wants you to want those treasures in heaven. He doesn't want you to want the things here in this world. He wants you to want a greater reward, to want those treasures, to want that inheritance. Let me read for you these verses. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In fact, the Apostle Paul would specifically preach the gospel without charge. He would do it without charge, even though he had every right to expect payment for doing so. In fact, this was his, his right to make a living by proclaiming the gospel, but he did it free of charge. And why did he do it free of charge? He did it for a heavenly reward. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So a few books over to the left. You have Galatians. Um, and then just to the left, you should have 2 Corinthians. You can go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So it's really two books to the left of Ephesians. Three books, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 11. And we'll just read through this. It's pretty straightforward. But, but listen to Paul's reasoning here. Starting in verse 11, Paul says this. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others shared the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. This is referring back to the Old Testament and the priests and how they made a living. Verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But here, look at verse 15. He says, but I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so that in my case, for it would be better for me to die than having taken any man I'm sorry, it'd be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, Paul had been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. His charge was to preach the gospel. He expects no reward just by preaching the gospel because he's doing what he has been called to do. But verse 17, he says this. For I do, if I do this voluntarily, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? What is his reward? And what is the reward he's talking about? He's talking about his reward in heaven. He says that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul goes to great lengths to be able to show the Corinthians that he has been ministering the gospel to them free of charge and explaining it to them that he had every right to ask for sustenance, for to ask them to support him. But he specifically did it free of charge. Why? So that he would have an even greater reward in heaven. So if Paul is pursuing a greater reward, let me just say there is, it is absolutely virtuous for you to do the same. Seek a greater reward in heaven. Now, though we learn something else about this inheritance, let's go back to Ephesians 1.11. This inheritance that's being talked about here in verse 11, once again, verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, we see this idea of being predestined again, just like we saw it earlier in verse 5. Verse 5 said he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And this goes to show that God's choice that was before the foundation of the world and his predestining us to adoption also included an inheritance. Now, while Paul said we have an inheritance, 
end of, we have an inheritance. He, he says these things. We have obtained an inheritance. He says it past tense. This inheritance is not necessarily here. Though we have obtained it, it's not here, but it's in heaven. Just as we read from Peter earlier that it is reserved in heaven, or at least most of that inheritance is. We'll find out soon enough that we actually do have inheritance today with us. And God's sovereign act in this unmistakable, is unmistakable. His sovereign act, his sovereign power is unmistakable throughout this verse. Because just as I mentioned that inheritance is this idea of something given to you by God. It also says here that you have been predestined according to his purpose. And what else? Who works all things after the counsel of his will. So consider that we have an inheritance given to us by God. We are reminded of God's predestining work over us. We are reminded of God's purpose. We are reminded that God works all things after the counsel of his will. This is all rooted in the planning that God has done from before the foundation of the world. Now that word for counsel, when it says after the counsel of his will, that word for counsel comes from the Greek word boule. And it could be rendered as plan or purpose, intention, resolution, decision. So there's a number of ways that you can render that to, to, to translate that. But perhaps more significantly, it can also refer to a council meeting. It's like when you go to City Hall, you have a council meeting. It's an assembly where we see proposals and deliberations happening. And it's at this time that I remind you that this praise from Paul is a Trinitarian praise. He is going to honor God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for this work that had been predestined, that had been chosen, that had been planned even before the foundation of the world. And we're going to see the work of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the last two verses this morning. But essentially, God's plan of redemption included the involvement from all three persons of the Godhead. This was an inner Trinitarian council of the three heads of God, of the three people of God. So this council is a result of deliberate planning on the part of the full Trinity. It was God the Father who created the plan. It was God the Son who would execute it. And it was God the Holy Spirit who would apply it to our lives and our hearts. In other words, God works all things after the deliberate planning of the Godhead that produced his will. So when it says the counsel of his will, it's this inner Trinitarian council that happened before the foundation of the world that ended up producing the will of God the Father. So to sum up, this inheritance that we're receiving stems from God's purposeful planning that led to his will and his purpose in predestining us to receive this inheritance. And what I want you to notice, what I want you to see that this is not by luck. This is not a result of mere chance. This is not like the lottery where you try to guess the right numbers and hope that your numbers are called. God's plan cannot be thwarted or taken away. This plan has been rooted from eternity past. What God has decreed from the beginning will be fulfilled through the end. It'll never be taken away. But that leads Paul now to address the blessing to the Jews first. Take a look at Verse 12, verse 12, Paul writes to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, verse 12 in the NASB, it starts off with to the end, while the New King James and the ESV say that or so that. Essentially, this is communicating purpose. So this is the, the purpose clause that points back to the inheritance in verse 11. But this is where Paul begins to split his focus. Because this time, when he says we, he qualifies it with we who were the first to hope in Christ. Until now, he had not provided any qualifiers to these pronouns. So why do I believe that this is referring to Jewish believers? Well, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus' ministry was focused upon bringing the gospel to Israel first. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but when he sent out his 12 disciples, remember, he sent out his 12 disciples to go ahead and proclaim the gospel. He gave them this instruction um, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. 
Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I often say I am so glad that the book of Matthew did not end on that verse. Right? So that the gospel would go out to all the nations, which is how Jesus would end that book. But also in John chapter 4, verse 22, one of the few times when Jesus would actually speak to a Samaritan, this is the woman at the well, he said to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So this is talking about the priority of Jews with regards to this plan and how Jews would be the ones to proclaim that message of salvation. And additionally, when the gospel was first proclaimed after Jesus' ascension, that that comes in the book of Acts. But even before that happened, even before the day of Pentecost, when when they would start proclaiming the the, the gospel of good news, Jesus gave these instructions in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Notice those areas that Jesus identified. You are to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, those two first regions, the two first regions mentioned, one is the city of Jerusalem, the other is the region of Judea. That is all Jewish territory. So the message of salvation was to be proclaimed primarily to Jews first. And even Paul, when he traveled from city to city, when he went to go minister to the Gentiles, every city he visited, guess where he went first? He went to the synagogues. He went to the synagogues. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, read this. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom... He went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And even in Paul's letter to the Romans, in Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'm providing a lot of verses here because this is a claim that I want you to be able to see why I believe this is to Jewish believers first. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So despite the fact that Paul was the appointed apostle to the Gentiles, everywhere he went, he would minister first to the Jews in that area. So those who were the first to hope in Christ, I believe, refer broadly to the Jewish people who had already responded to the gospel, both those with Paul and those of Jewish descent in Ephesus. It was really just a broad reference to the fact that Jews have been waiting for their Messiah. They had been the first to put their hope in this Messiah. And the ones at this point who had believed, they were blessed as they are in Christ by their response of belief. Now, why is the salvation of Jews specifically for the praise of his glory, as we see back in Ephesians 1? Well, because from the Old Testament, Jews were called first to be the people of God. And while the Old Testament details their failures to love and obey God, their response, the Israelites' response to the gospel, the early responses we see from Jerusalem and Judea, shows that God's plan for Israel had not been a failure. There has always been a remnant in Israel, and this is to show that this remnant would, would respond to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And if you read Romans chapters 9 through 11, you'll also find that God is not yet finished with Israel. Amen. Now, why should we care about the first Jewish converts? Because as we'll see, the inheritance they have is a shared inheritance. So even though Paul is focusing here upon Jewish believers, it's not like Jewish believers have something different than the rest of us. He is going to focus on a shared inheritance later on. But the Jews were the original people of God, and the Old Testament is filled with promises specifically to them. 
And one of the proofs that God's promises to us as Gentiles, one of the proofs that God's promises to us are eternal and can never be taken away is the fact that his promises first to Israel can also not be taken away, that they too are unchangeable. God has preserved a remnant of Jews who responded to the gospel and continues to respond even today, even though they are a small remnant. I remember going into Israel and worshiping at a Messianic Jewish place of worship. And it was an underground location. It had to be hidden. Um, But it was amazing the joy and it was amazing the singing and just hearing the passion that they would proclaim for Christ as their Messiah. Absolutely unbelievable. And let me read for you this from Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul explains what's happening to Israel in this way. He says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So right now, the lack of response that we see from greater Israel is due to this partial hardening. And it's God's plan to to fulfill his word, to fulfill his gospel of salvation through the Gentiles first. And then he will come back to the Israelites. So, beloved, let us share the gospel with all nations without a doubt. But let us anticipate with joy the day that Israel finally recognizes Jesus as their Messiah. But going back to Ephesians, Paul will now turn his attention from Jewish believers towards Gentile believers, leading us to the second blessing that God provided to believers through his son. This is the second blessing that God provided to believers through his son. The first was that he gave us an inheritance according to his purpose. The second is that he sealed us for eternity with the Holy Spirit. He sealed us for eternity with the Holy Spirit. Picking it up from verse 13, this is where we see the contrast. Paul says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So in verse 13, we see the you also, which builds off what Paul said in verse 12 when he was talking about Jewish believers. Now in verse 13, he's saying everyone else, you also, the implication being Gentile believers. The idea is that we too have a part in this inheritance. While salvation was to the Jews first, God had always purposed from eternity past to save Gentiles as well. And for us as Gentiles, verse 13 reads, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We as Gentiles had to listen to the message of truth. This refers specifically to God's truth. As we see, Paul further clarifies this as the gospel of your salvation. And with regards to this message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, he goes on to say that having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. I mean, we see there having also believed. That was the response. That's how we became in Christ, that we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believed in his work on the cross. We believed that he was Lord and that we had to repent of our sins and follow him. So while the sovereign work of God is highlighted throughout this passage with God's choice and work of predestination, we clearly see that the means that God brings us to salvation is through the proclamation of the gospel and the response of people to believe. I often hear from people that if God is sovereign over all our salvation, if he really did choose us before the foundation of the world, if he really did predestine those who would become his sons, why even bother evangelizing? He's already saved who he's going to save. It makes no difference what we do. That's often what I hear. Why share the truth? He's already chosen. It's going to happen regardless. Well, we do it because as we see here, his work of salvation is accomplished through the proclamation of the gospel. And who is it that's called to proclaim the gospel? How many of us? All of us. That is the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. Proclaim the good news everywhere. So we all bear this responsibility, and it is through our proclamation that God sovereignly saves people. But 
What I really love about God's sovereignty over salvation, what really gives me comfort, is that you and me were simply called to proclaim the truth. We're simply called to share the truth. Whether people believe or not, that's not in our power. That's not up to us. That's up to God. They're not going to be won by our methods. They're not going to be won by our wisdom. We don't have to feel like a failure when people do not respond. They're going to be won over by the sovereign hand of God moving in their hearts to respond to the gospel as proclaimed by you. And as often has been said to me, you make sure that the gospel goes from your mouth to their ears. You leave it to God to bring it from their ears to their heart. And so that is a call for you. And hopefully this is, this is going to give you even greater boldness to proclaim. This is going to even give you more confidence to proclaim because the results are not up to you. You're simply called to proclaim it. You glorify God whenever you share that message of truth. But of course, do it with compassion. Do it with kindness. Make sure that if they reject the gospel, they're rejecting it because of the message itself and not because of your behavior. I've seen way too many people who are out and preaching with a very angered expression and acting like they're ready to beat people over their heads with their Bibles. Or people are simply seemingly more content to condemn people to hell than to show them the way of salvation. Beloved, share the truth in love. Do it with kindness and compassion so that if they reject it, they reject it because of the message itself and not because of you. Don't be that stumbling block. But for all of us who did respond by believing, we have this tremendous gift from God. Once again, verse 13, after it says, having also believed, it says you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the Greek word for seal can be understood in a number of ways. It could be something denoting security, that you were sealed in a secure sense. It could be authentication, that this is to authenticate who was the sender or who was it that, that this object was received from. But in our case, it probably best represents ownership. And when we get to verse 14, you're going to see this more clearly. Now, in the old days, I mean, this idea of seal, though, in the old days, officials would have their own signet ring. And when sending messages, they would use their signet ring to, to seal it. You know, that's the, the idea when someone got the letter, it was first of all sealed, but they saw the mark of that signet ring that showed that it really came from who it said it came from. You know, that's the idea behind the word. But in this case, we are marked. We are shown that God owns us, that we belong to him. But who did the sealing? Well, at the end of the verse, we see with the Holy Spirit of promise. So while you could say that you were sealed by God, and indeed God sent forth the Holy Spirit to you, more specifically, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And when it says the Holy Spirit of promise, what does that mean? Well, this reminds us that God's Spirit had been promised as a part of God's saving work, even going back to the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, this will be a very familiar verse, God says this, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then John chapter 14, remember Jesus up in the upper room with his disciples. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says this, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. The implication there is that Jesus was the first helper. He is going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Amen. And so you were sealed in him to show that you have the mark of God. Your life now belongs to God. Now, this sealing is not to be confused with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You, you see, the Spirit has multiple ministries. And if you want to know more about that, you come back tonight, 6 o'clock, and we'll talk about that. But the Spirit has multiple ministries. And the baptism of the Spirit describes the Spirit's work in making you a part of the body of Christ. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul writes this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So in the case of Ephesians 1, verse 13, Paul is not talking about your identification with the body of Christ. That is certainly true. But here he is really talking about the mark that you belong to God. And as we'll see further affirmed in the next verse, take a look at verse 14. Verse 14, with regards to this spirit, this Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14 says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. This Holy Spirit who sealed us was given to us as a pledge. Now, what's a pledge? Uh, The word is more accurately understood as a down payment with the guarantee that there is more coming. The ESV translates this as a guarantee. And that'd be more accurate than a pledge because a pledge, you give money and then you get it back. Um, But the idea here is that this is a down payment. It is a guarantee that there's additional inheritance to come that we will receive in heaven. But I like that Paul says our inheritance, because at this point now he's talking about an inheritance that everyone is going to share in. So while his focus in verse 13 was upon the Gentiles that that um, have received the the truth, which is the and they have received the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The inheritance that we see here in verse 14 is the inheritance in heaven that is shared with Jews as well. Now, we won't get into it here, but Paul will go on in chapters two and three of Ephesians, talking about the wall of separation that was removed between Jews and Gentiles so that all of us would be fellow heirs in Christ. All of us are part of the family of God together. There is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And here in verse 14, we also see as we get to the end of verse 14, we also see that we, starting from, from the beginning, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, last week we talked about redemption. You may remember that. We talked about redemption and we, we talked about it. Really, Paul referred to it in terms of forgiveness of sins. Now, it means a lot more than forgiveness of sins. But back in verse 7, that was Paul's focus, the forgiveness of sins, the idea that you have that. And Paul here in verse 14, though, is now talking about a future possession. So in verse 7, he was talking about forgiveness of sins. But in verse 14, he's talking about a future possession. Literally in the Greek here, you know, instead of the redemption of God's own possession, it literally says for the redemption of the possession, for the redemption of the possession. It's very general. It doesn't doesn't explicitly say who is possession. So what is that possession? Well, the New King James and the NASB has this translated as God's own possession, whereas the ESV has it translated as the believer's possession. Theologically, neither possibility is wrong. We had just talked about our inheritance in heaven, the inheritance that belongs to us as believers. And of course, this inheritance is mentioned right here in verse 14. So in a sense, it makes sense contextually. And we know that we're going to receive that inheritance when we get to heaven. However, in this case, I prefer the NASB translation that identifies this as God's possession. Why? Because whenever redemption is mentioned, whenever redemption is talked about in the Bible, especially, well, really throughout the scriptures from Old Testament to New, whenever it's mentioned, it is connected to what God has accomplished and not man. In other words, we are the object of redemption, not the subject of it. God achieves it. We are the recipients of it. And I'll remind you that grammatically that the main action being described in verses 13 and 14 actually tie back to the end of verse 13 when we read that we were sealed. We were sealed. And again, sealing is meant as a mark of ownership. And the idea of God's people being his possession, this is also all over the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New. Let me read for you Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So all the earth belongs to the Lord, but he is saying that specifically the Israelites would be a people of his own possession. And then Peter would build on this in the letter of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes this, 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it makes better sense to see this redemption as God's possession. This is the redemption of God's possession, and it's essentially looking forward. It's looking forward to final redemption. Now, what do I mean by final redemption? You know, we, we kind of live in this transitional reality as believers. We have been saved, but we have not experienced final salvation. We have been redeemed, but we have not experienced final redemption. So when I say final, I'm talking about the eternal state. I'm talking about a future time in when our hope becomes sight, our faith becomes sight. At that time when we are resurrected with glorified bodies to live in the new heavens and the new earth. At that time, we will be finally redeemed as God's treasured possession. But in terms of us being owned by God, you might ask, so how is that different today? Look, he owns us today. He owns us tomorrow. He owns us in the eternal state. How is that different? Yes, it's true. He owns us even now. We are his possession even now. But consider this. We live in a sin-tainted world. We still suffer from the weakness of the flesh, do we not? We still experience the sickness and death and diseases that come in this mortal experience. We're still subject to the actions of others who don't know God, the, the, the violence they may commit against us, the sins that they may commit against us. We can still suffer violence in this world. Some of you are war veterans. You can still suffer today from the grisly images of war experienced in the past. Some of you police officers or prison guards, you have been subjected routinely to the ugly depravity of mankind in your work. And to make things worse, we are the ongoing target of the forces of evil. This letter of Ephesians is going to conclude with the call to put on the full armor of God in chapter 6. And why is that? Because we are in spiritual warfare and Satan's aim is to take you off the battlefield and make you useless for God's purposes. Yes, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Yes, we are God's own possession. But that hasn't been fully realized until we're in the direct presence of God, freed from the futility of sin around us. And it's this future reality, this future certainty that has to give us hope today. For the last three weeks, uh, including this morning, we have been deep into theology with this extended praise from Paul. Paul doesn't give us any commands here. There's a lot of deep theological, theological concepts here. Paul hasn't even taken the slightest moment here to talk about application. You want to know why we go in depth to, to study all this theology? We do this because theology informs our minds. It informs your hope. It reminds you that God has promised something better, not in this world, but in the one to come. In fact, let's take for a moment, let's take a spiritual inventory of everything that we've learned from verses 3 to 14. In verse 3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In verse, I'm sorry, in verse 3, that was verse 3. Verse 4, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world so that we would stand holy and blameless before God. Verse 5, we have been predestined to adoption as sons. Verse 7, we have the redemption, specifically the forgiveness of sins for all eternity. Verse 9, we have the mystery of God's will revealed to us in Christ. Verse 10, we see that all of human history will culminate and climax with Christ being head over all things in the heavens and in the earth. Verse 11, we have been predestined also to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and waiting for us. And verse 13, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit that marks God's ownership of us. This is a guarantee of final redemption. This is God saying that no matter what happens in this life, your future with him can never be taken away. Amen. Is this praise any good? This is a wonderful praise from Paul. And all this is by God's grace. Look again at verse 4. He did it out of love. Verse 5. He demonstrated his kind intention towards us. Verse 6. He freely bestowed this grace upon us. Verse 7. He reached into the riches of his grace to provide us forgiveness. Verse 8. He lavished us with this grace. And verse 9. Once again, we see his kind intention towards us. 
This is why God is worthy of praise. This is why Paul starts off with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why he repeats his praise in verse 6 and then, then again in verse 12. This is why, after listing all of these blessings... From verse 3 to 14, when you look at the very end of verse 14, he ends with these marvelous words, to the praise of his glory. This is to the praise of the glory of God. You see, the heartfelt praise from us to God will bring hope and joy into your heart that will surpass all comprehension and help you overcome the trials in your life. This is the real application of it, because the more that we are in a heartfelt praise of God, the more our hope is fixated upon the future, and the less we're dragged down by the things of our current times. It should guard you from complete hopelessness. It should guard you from acts of desperation. It should guard you from the disappointments in this world. It should guard you from the hatred that leads to so much violence in our world. And just this past week, I'm reminded that once again, we have more shootings. We have more mass murders. This is a result of people who have no hope in this world or who have taken desperate measures. But this peace, it should also guard you through the physical frailties that increasingly beset you. As we get older and older, older, we find more and more parts of our body not functioning like they once did. It should guard you through the anxiety of the unknown. Sometimes we worry so much about the future, about what the future will bring, not knowing how we're going to get past our, our current trials, our, our current challenges, whether it be financial or health-wise or family-related. But God is in control of all that. And it should guard you through all the spiritual attacks that we experience, the spiritual warfare that surrounds us. And more than that, it should proclaim the glories of God. It should cause us to proclaim the glories of God for the rest of eternity. Because, beloved, if there's one thing clear from all these verses of blessing, it's the fact that God has acted from eternity past to save you and to bless you and in his divine sovereignty, power, purpose, and love. He will bring it to pass, and no one and nothing can stop him. Now, for those of you this morning who are here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just gotten through reciting some marvelous blessings that come from God to us. And these are blessings that none of us did anything to deserve. For all of us, we deserve judgment. The wages of sin is death. Because of our sinful nature, because of our sins as a human race, because of all of our sins in our past, we will stand in judgment before God and the verdict will be none other than guilty. Because we serve a holy God who is perfect. We serve a holy God who is perfectly righteous and just. He holds us according to his righteous law and he has to just us according he has to judge us according to his perfect justice. You know, it reminds me of a time when I was in Singapore and Singapore is one of the most beautiful places in the world I've ever been. And one of the reasons why it's so beautiful is because they punish harshly even the smallest of crimes. If you, if you throw food wrappings on the ground, you know, you can, be, you can be fined up to $500 or $1,000 or something in that range. You know, they, you, you remember a long time ago, there was that young boy that, that spray-painted graffiti on the wall. And he got a public caning. 19 lashes, if I remember correctly. But what's amazing when we got there is that how beautiful the place was because people obeyed the law. If you break the law there and you go before a judge, you can't refer back to your past and say, oh, but I've been so good all this time. I just, just this one day I decided to spray paint the walls. No. A perfectly just judge is going to render the verdict that's due for that crime. And God will do the same thing to you. The only difference with us, the only difference for us, those of us who proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we understand why God sent Jesus Christ into the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life eternal. 
It is only through the life of Jesus Christ. It is only through his sacrifice on the cross that he paid the penalty for our sins. And it's a marvelous blessing to be forgiven of your sins before God. All you have to do at this time is to put your trust into the Lord Jesus Christ. To make a commitment right now to repent of your sins. Repent of your sins and follow him as Lord. It is but a small price. You don't have to shed any blood for it. You don't have to pay anything for it. You just have to give your life up to him and repent of your prior ways. And you too will know the forgiveness of sins. And not only that, but this extended praise from Paul, all these marvelous spiritual blessings show that we have a much greater future awaiting us that can never be taken away. But do it this morning. Do not leave here without talking to myself or one of the deacons. In fact, deacons, can you stand up for a moment? Deacons in the audience, would you stand up? If you're here this morning and you have not made that public profession, talk to me, talk to one of the deacons after the service. We'll talk to you, we'll pray with you, we'll show you the way of salvation, which is none other than to repent of your sins and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for the rest of us, let me close by reading a section of scripture from the book of Romans. It's a marvelous section of scripture. These are out of the words of Paul, and I think these well summarize my feelings as I really thought about this message. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, read this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your name's sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.